everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelance and Tennis Part, the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. As always, have with me my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. Steve, got a little WTA finals and some Paris Masters talk. You ready to roll? Ready to roll, David. A lot going on in the tennis world right now. Yeah, well, let's let's start with the WTA finals and let's start with with the person who that I was obviously so high on throughout the whole year. Had her struggles, as we all know, especially in the in the slams. But um, ever since that big win to qualify in Guadalajara, I was hoping this person could play with a freer mind. It looked like she did. That's Maria Sakari. Had an impressive round robin of three matches beating Pagula. A little revenge from that Guadalajara final. Then Sabalenka and then Anz Jabor all in straight sets. Yeah, it started with a very tight couple of breakers against Pagula, and then she just got better and better after that. Sad part for her is that this can happen at that tournament in the sense that you almost can peak too soon at sometimes in the round robin. She wasn't at her best in the semifinals. So she goes out to Garcia in straight sets, a, a pretty decisive loss. That's bad luck in a way because it's hard to win three round robin matches like that, like she did. In some, in some cases, players will win two out of three and then peak for the semis and finals and win the tournament right. having lost a run. She didn't have that didn't happen to her. Nonetheless, a great ending to the season for her beyond any doubt. I was going to say, I think she'll take um, a lot more positives going into 20, 2023 with the way she finished Guadalajara and even this tournament, even with the disappointing result in the semis. Um, she beat a lot of top players, especially this past week. I think that will um, feed her psyche well going into 2023. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, she, she, she did very well to make it in there, made the most of her opportunities, lost to a better player in the semifinals, but definitely heads into 2023 with a, a feeling like she's got uh, the wins behind her back. And that, that's nice. And then, by the way, while we're talking about the WTA finals and we get to a few other things, let's tip our hats to the two players that did make the final. Because Gar Garcia and Sabalenka, great week for both of them. What you know, they couldn't have asked for more at the end of this year than to have, have been squaring off in the finals of the of, of the year end championship. So all credit to them. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I want to touch on two players that you and I specifically called out saying we're looking forward to seeing how they will play in this tournament. I mean, it couldn't have gone any worse for them. That said, I know some one of them wasn't feeling very well, and it's a long year for both, and we'll go into it a little bit. But the two players I'm talking about, Jessica Pagula and Coco Goff, they didn't win a match combined in singles or doubles. Yeah, David, it, a very tough pill to swallow for both, considering they come into the tournament as the number three and four players in the world. So theoretically, you expect to see them qualify for the semifinals. No, not an automatic, but you figure, OK, based on ranking, they could have a decent chance. Nothing went right for either player. But again, in a slightly different way from Sakari, it, it can't spoil the the uh, the many credits they had across the season and the fact that they did find themselves, you know, in top four slots here heading to the tournament. I mean, they both still had terrific seasons. I think maybe Pagula was a bit burnt out by then. Coco just couldn't get untracked in this tournament and then things didn't go right in doubles either. But it, it doesn't spoil what for both of them were spectacular seasons. 
Right. It's kind of the opposite of what Sakari had, right? Sakari had a rough yeah. year, finished strong. Right. Pagula right. and Coco, they had a good year, did not finish well. Um, I, I want to give credit uh, um, to Vonch on Twitter. You know, Coco, it was a long year. She played 104 matches this year. Um, I read this on Twitter. 60 singles, 40 doubles, and four mixed. That's a lot of matches for anyone. Um, long year, like I said. I, I, we Funny know there's areas. She, go ahead. So I'm sorry to interrupt. You just made me realize, though. Yeah, Bunch, he, he bounced that off me, and we had a little text exchange about that because his point was, did I agree? And I did that maybe Coco has to rethink maybe Pagula too. But the point being, if you play that much singles and doubles, can you really keep up that pace? Are you not going to make yourself vulnerable to injuries in the years ahead? That That's something that, that players that are that good in singles and doubles as Pagula and Coco are, they have to think about it. And the priority has to be singles. So it may mean cutting back on some of the doubles at least, and, and then maybe slightly reshaping their singles schedule schedules so as not to play you can't go on playing that many matches year in and year out with without having something go wrong with your body and i know the matches may may have been less physical as far as power and rackets and string but it just i guess amazes you that someone like john McEnroe was so good at both and played singles and doubles all the time um yeah looking back it's it's remarkable and he wasn't getting hurt very much either <laughs> uh, but john maybe because of his style of play and attacking as much as he did short points and singles. He loved doubles and therefore didn't practice as much as a lot of the other guys might have right. uh, for his singles because the doubles was giving him the practice. So he found That's what he said. He said he, he hated practice. The doubles yeah. was his substitute for practice. So. Yeah, so that worked out for him and he managed to pull it off. But he was the last of a breed there. I mean, he was preceded by people like John Newcomb and Tony Roach and Stan Smith and Bob Letts who all play all were great doubles players as well as standouts and singles but those days are over yeah yeah those days are, are, are they are over um we had mentioned Garcia with her impressive week and, and her win over Sakri in the semis um Iga Sviatek, right what a year she had she lost in three sets to Sabalenka great win for Sabalenka Sviatek, 67 and 9 eight titles including two slams and four WTA 1000s, including that 37-match win streak over the spring and summer. Um, what a year for her, for Iga. Yeah, it, 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 was, it was impossible to sustain the, the excellent pace she, she set during the 37-match streak. And so she was a bit more up and down after that, but not a lot. And I thought it was a great thing for women's tennis and for her, David, that she backed up her French Open win after losing early at Wimbledon to come back to win the U.S. Open, take two majors, and establish herself as without uh, any dispute, indisputably as the number one woman player in the world. Too bad for her that she couldn't end the season on a slightly higher note, but Sabalenka played a great match, and, and Iga just couldn't get going, couldn't stay with her in that third set, which was 6-1 for Sabalenka. Still, again, a, a spectacular season for Sriantec, and I think she will... I think she'll pretty much replicate it in the year ahead. That's my guess. She'll have a sim similarly strong uh, 2023. Would have been interesting to see if Ash Barty did not retire, what would have happened with Iga's year? I think Iga still would have had a very, very strong year. Would it have been as impressive as what we just listed and talked about? We'll never know. But um, well, you know what, David? Stop my, on that a little bit. Yeah, that's fascinating. You put that. It, 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 as soon as you say it, my my my, my thought is, most likely Ash wins Wimbledon again. 
but maybe Ego would have won the two majors she got regardless. We'll never know. Right. But that could have been a, such an attractive rivalry for women's tennis. That That's what we miss out on. But Ash made it a very unusual uh, decision for a player of her stature and uh, is entitled to it. Absolutely. Let, let's move on to the Paris Masters and, and a player that both of us pointed out again last week. We were curious to see how he responded, and that's Rafa Nadal, first time as a father playing. Um, we really haven't seen vintage Rafa since Wimbledon before he got hurt to Taylor in the uh, quarterfinals. Match Rafa wound up winning, but then had to default in the semis. Um, Rafa was up a set um, to Tommy Paul, wound up losing in three sets. Rafa himself said, you know, he's got to play more on tour. He has to play more sets with these top guys. He knows he's more aware than anybody else that he's not in top form. And he also knows what he needs to do to get back in top form. And I, I, I hope um, in 2023, his body can hold up and um, he can get to that level that, that not only that we're accustomed to seeing, but what he demands of himself and his level of play. David, it's interesting, all the points you're making, because I'm thinking as you're saying it, listening to Jim Courier on the telecast, and Jim made an interesting point that the, the good news for Rafa, and this was during the course of his loss to Tommy Paul, but there seems to be no evidence of the foot, which we all were so worried about and which he had to get injections all through the French to get through Roland Garros and get his 14th title, that the foot seems okay. The foot did not, didn't seem to ever be a problem at Wimbledon or the Open or again here. So at least that seems under control. I don't know about the abdominal. I still don't think he's serving like the real Rafa. I didn't see it against Tommy. Paul. I don't see the comfortable extension that he once had. So I'm, I'm a bit concerned about that. And you're right. He talked about the need to play more matches. He talked about getting to Italy early to play practice sets. But practice sets is no, uh, you can't really say that it's it's anything like playing real matches it just helps you but it is not the same thing so it was unfortunate for him that he didn't get more matches in in paris and advance of turin to give himself a better chance of because that field is is incredibly uh, uh, so much depth in it and it's 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 going to be such a, a hard fought event and both groups of four players each are going to be exceedingly strong so it's going to be hard for rap because indoors as you know david that's where that's where he's always been least comfortable. Uh, the surface variation can matter, but regardless of what kind of hardcore or carpet is put down or what exactly the conditions are, it's never fully to his liking. And so he doesn't go in, I think, I believe, and I, he could well prove me wrong, with a lot of optimism into the year-end championships. On the other hand, he's, he's one of these guys who no matter how many negative comments he makes or how realistic he is and how many often he, how often have we heard him use the word doubts? It's one of his favorite words. On the other hand, he overcomes his doubts. So I still think we'll see him go in with, with the usual fighting spirit in the turn with the attitude of, okay, let me see if I can win a match. Let me see if I can win two matches. Let me see if I can make the semis and then go from there. So he'll still be hard to beat, but I don't like those conditions. It tends to be kind of fast in turn and fast indoor courts and, it, it'll be a tall order for him to play against this field uh, under those circumstances. And he's never won the year-end finals, no. right, Steve, in his career. No, so. never. It's amazing when you think about it. Well, you know, here's somebody with a record number up there with 22 majors and at least two of every Grand Slam event. He joins Djokovic in that department as the only player since Labor to realize that beat. And yet 
the year-end championships because it's indoors. And he's commented, David, he did make the comment of more than once during his career that he wished they could have had that. And he didn't mean it just selfishly. He just wished that the year-end could have changed surfaces and not always been indoors and maybe been on clay one year. Well, if that had ever happened, you can bet he'd have <laughs> If they played it on clay, guaranteed it's in his collection. That, that's true. Fun stat for especially the American tennis fans for Rafa's six losses this year. Three of the six losses have come against uh, ages 25 and under American men. Taylor Fritz at Indian Wells, Francis TFO at the U.S. Open, and Tommy Paul in Paris Masters. Just uh, if I said that would have happened at the beginning of the year, I'm not sure many people would have taken me up on that one. It's just an interesting stat. It is, but as you pointed out, to get back to your, your original point, he hasn't been the essential Rafa ever since the French. So right. we so if he, and he actually did manage to beat Fritz, avenged it at Wimbledon. At Wimbledon, was, yeah. <laughs> which is amazing. But the loss in Indian Wells, he was in terrible shape with the abdominal hat. He was, he was very honorable and professional to even go out there and compete that day. And then uh, he wasn't, I didn't think he was entirely right at the U.S. Open, taking nothing away from Francis Tiafo. So some of those losses, you can say, at least to a degree, had something to do with the physical condition of Rafa. But it is interesting that they would be, that those three young Americans would all pick him off. Yeah. Hey, another player we want, we definitely want to talk about. We knew he was going to lose eventually. We didn't know when because he was on such a hot streak. Felix Agir Aliassime, three titles in a row. Semis in Paris, Masters 1000 event. I mean, no shame in that. Um, this guy's playing some seriously good ball right now. <laughs> well, it's so many weeks in succession, David. It was, it was asking so much of himself to win three titles in a row and then go right on to Paris. And he managed to squeak out that match against Emer from a set and 4-1 down, which was a great recovery. Three, three break points for 5-1. He could have been out of there in straight sets. And then he started playing really well. And to, to, to get into the, he handled Francis Tiapo easily in the quarters and then played Holgaruna, who he'd beaten in the finals of Basel in straight right. sets. This time, Runa was returning much more effectively. And, and you could see that Felix was just a little bit off. If he'd been in top form versus this, the Runa that we were seeing emerge so magnificently over the course of this week, they would have had a, a, a phenomenal match, probably right down to the wire in three. But Felix was not up to it. He hit a wall, understandably, David, after winning yeah. three titles in a row. But he got you got your wish. You said, I, want, I hope he can go deep into that field. He did just that. And so I still think he goes into the year-end championships in Turin feeling very good about himself, David, and, and not at all uh, depressed about getting beaten in straight sets by Runa. And the other great thing about Felix, that is so admirable. He talked about how Runa exposed some of his weaknesses. Uh, he didn't, uh, he, and he, he didn't just say, oh, I was off. I just wasn't up to it today. And, and I thought that was a good attitude because it told you that he was going to go to work on those areas, that he was going to pay attention to what Runa exposed. And, and that's, Felix is just such a professional across the board. And we saw more evidence of that. And he'll have plenty of time. He'll, he'll have these to get ready and be rested when, when he plays his first match, which won't be before, uh, you know, the, the opening Sunday of the event. So he's got plenty mm -hmm. of time. He'll be, I think, revitalized by then. And still enormously confident after what he did. I mean, we talked about it the last podcast. The guy never won a tournament before early, early this year. He breaks that eight final round loss streak. 
and then wins now four tournaments this year and three in a row in the fall. What more could he ask for? So I still think he benefited from playing well in Paris, despite the loss. I put a poll out on Twitter and I didn't get a, an overwhelming response at all, but I'm going to um, preview a question for you. I don't want an answer now. We'll do it on the year end. Similar to what I asked you about Jessica Pagula. Does Felix win a slam in 2023? Something for you to digest when we do our uh, year end segment. Sure. Um, sure. It's coming up soon. I can't believe we're almost at the end of the year here. All right, let's talk. Let's talk Novak because Novak looked really good throughout the event. Um, I'm going to basically uh, pass the torch on to you in the semis and finals. There are certain things I, I'll, I'll chime in on when I want to talk about, but the semi versus pass, um, I'll let you kind of start it out. Um, and, and I, I want to talk a little bit about that miraculous tiebreaker that they had in the third set. Yeah. Well, you know what? It, it, Novak hadn't lost a set all week and he was on his winning streak too. He'd won his last three tournaments going back to Wimbledon and two in a row uh, right. in the autumn. And he, and he was really primed for this event. Didn't lose a set coming into Sitsipas. And uh, that was an interesting match because he won the first set really comfortably six, two, and then had a love 30 opening at the start of the second set. And, was clear that if he broke him there, having won five games in a row at that stage, he might blitz him. But uh, Stefanos got out of that game, started waving his arms up at the crowd. He really played to the crowd. You know, and, and I don't say that begrudgingly. I think it was wise because he wanted to let the crowd know, hey, I can use a little boost here. Help me out. And they did. They really got up behind him. And then Novak, you could see that he was a little bit jarred by that. He wasn't angry. He just was a little more low key and a little less confident and Sitsipas wins the second set. And then they go to the third and twice Djokovic had him down 1540, including at four all. And Stefanos got out of it each time to bring that match into a final set tiebreaker fitting conclusion. And in the tiebreak, David, they're on serve until Stefanos gets the mini break. He's up four, three serving. Yep. So you figure, boy, he's in good shape. He wins both of these points It's his match. Djokovic hits an incredible forehand inside in winner that, Sitsipas challenge, lost the challenge, and then Stefanos made an error off the backhand, and then Djokovic played a, 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 a typically brilliant defensive point to go to 6-4 that was out of this world. Out, out of this world, Steve, by both players. Um, yeah, it was. And finally, Stefanos ends up netting a low forehand volley, but understandably because somehow Djokovic at full stretch had managed to steer his pass down the line without much pace on it, keeping it low enough that and Stefanos couldn't handle the volley. But Stefanos looked like he had him two or three times in that yes. point. And, and that's 6-4. And then Djokovic closes it out with a nice serve down the tee that set up an overhead winner. So that was a nice recovery from him. And, and he was, I think, exhilarated, but maybe a bit emotionally exhausted from that, too. That had the feeling of a final to it, but he still had one more to go. So he plays. Yeah, so I want to. So so I, I want to talk about the tiebreaker uh, a little bit. I mean, down yeah. three, four in a mini break, he wins four points in a row to win the match. Yeah. Like you said, I, yeah. I've said this before on previous podcasts. Novak is so unbelievably good in tiebreakers, and I break it down to three reasons why. Is one in tiebreakers? If you notice, he gets aggressive, but he gets aggressive at big targets. He's never really too close no, no. to any of the sideline or the baseline. So he gets aggressive to big targets. That's one. Number two, he doesn't miss. Okay? He just doesn't miss. Very rarely do you see him make a bad unforced error in the tiebreaker. And three, what that does 
it makes his opponents eventually try to go for something a little bit more than what they're accustomed to doing. And they most of the time wind up making the error. Those three factors to me are why he's so incredibly clean and successful in big time tiebreakers. Oh, very well described. Listen, David, I, I didn't count one unforced error in those 11 points. Obviously he didn't make any over the last four points, but I'm, but it's <laughs> a played really good points on his own serve up in, uh, in the process of building a three, two lead. And then Novak brought it back to three all. And then Stefanos plays a, a, another really good point to go up four, three. So, there, that proves your point. But in the meantime, he was aggressive. And then when he really had to take it up a notch on both offense and defense from three, four down, he, he did it. Hit the forehand yeah. inside in winner and then played the stupendous defensive point that took him to six, four. And he did one of the classic Djokovic hand up to the ear moves to let the crowd know, couldn't, I, couldn't the applause be a little louder? But it was that that the atmosphere was, for that was was electric as it was for the final. It was just a, a wonderful weekend in that sense, with two classic hard fought three set struggles involving Djokovic. One a victory for him, and obviously the final uh, a a a defeat. Yeah, um, I just I, I'd urge the listeners if if you haven't really noticed that when you watch Novak play these tiebreakers, look at the three factors I've talked about, especially. He goes aggressive, but at big targets. And that's such a good lesson to learn for every every level, especially in tight moments. You don't have to go for lines in the tightest moment to be aggressive. You can do it in other ways. And Novak does that so, so well. He does. But then if he sees an opening that he's confident he can make, a shot that for somebody else might seem like a small target, like the forehand inside in winter that got him back to 4 all. It was right on the line. Sitsipas challenging. But it wasn't a reckless shot, David. It was one that right. well calculated on Novak's part. He, he saw the opening, and he'll make that shot nine out of ten times. Correct. All right, so let, let's get to the final. Um, he's up 3-1 in, in the final set. Novak is. Is there anything you want to talk about before we get to that? Oh, yeah. I mean, generally, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, absolutely, because here was the sort of the, the – uh, the, the analogy, the, the the similarity between the semifinal and the final is that Djokovic wins, loses only five points on his serve in the whole first set and 21 out of 26 points. He gets an early break when uh, Holger, who is understandably apprehensive, a little over anxious, serves a couple of double faults and helps Novak out. And then Novak took complete control of that set in a, in much in, very reminiscent of what he'd done against Tsitsipas, completely all control aggression. So measuring his shots perfectly, he's in control of the match. First game, second set, he gets to love 40 on, on Runa's serve. And he, again, you had the feeling there, if he breaks here, this match could be over. Not that he was necessarily going to blitz through the set 6-2 or 6-1, but that the one break was going to be good enough. And he missed a backhand down the line pass. Not the easiest one of all time, but the opening was there. He'd normally make it. Then a forehand return off his second serve where he was leaning to that side and ready for it but he netted it. And then he, 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 he missed again. Uh, he, did, he didn't miss, but he hit a, an overhead that he didn't put away, and Runa managed to get it back deep and then won it on the next shot. So basically, those are three points that look like they might, they should have, he probably could have won any of the three and didn't. And when Runa got out of that game to get, to get the hold there and, and, and keep him, you know, himself from going down an immediate break in the second set, you could see his mood shift. You could see the excitement in him, the exuberance, and you could see 
the disappointment in Novak because he surely was thinking about the day before and realizing that's where he got into trouble against Stefanos is that if he could have just secured that early break, the whole complexion of the match would have been different. So that then, then Novak plays maybe his only bad service game of the match uh, in the second game to lose his serve sits up and, and Runa serves out to three love and eventually wins the set six, three. That was a big swing those first couple of games of the second set between Djokovic being in utter control and Runa getting his teeth into the contest. Then we go to that stage of the match that you just mentioned, where early in the third, Djokovic seemed to regroup and seemed to be back in control. And he gets a double fault again out of Olga Runa on the break point that puts him up 3-1. But meantime, he's signaling to the umpire that he's going to need the trainer. You sense that something was going on in that game that was putting extra pressure on him and his mind to make sure that he held for four one before he saw the trainer. And he got to 30 love and served and volleyed and was a little unlucky because Runa's passing shot clipped the net cord and, and stayed in the court bounded. Novak had no play on the volley. And then he got to 40 30 and came in on an approach that wasn't good enough. And then at deuce, he got too cute on a forehand volley and didn't put it, didn't put, make the drop volley as he should have. And then had a follow up high backhand volley that he didn't put away and Runa passed him. So that was a disappointing game because he, he looked like at 30-11, 40-30, he's going to go to 4-1. He sees the trainer to deal with his left quad. And, and David, I should mention now, both days he kept stretching out that left quad time and time again. Not the way you might see him in a long five-setter in Australia where we get to early in the fifth and He's stretching it out once or twice and you get it because the match is for cramping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, but more, yeah, just to avoid cramping, but also just because they've been out there so long and, and just right. a few stretches and that's it here was constant stretching almost after every changeover. So I think, but then interestingly enough, once the trainer came and rubbed it a little bit, he seemed okay. The rest of the way he didn't stretch he did. it anymore. He, he, I think there was reassurance in seeing the trainer and the trainer probably telling him you're not going to do any damage to it. You're going to be okay. And who knows what else he told him, but clearly he didn't need to get it wrapped or anything like that. And then he started to play well again, but of course he'd given up the service break. So now we go to, you know, he keeps holding for, for, for uh, three, two, four, three. And then he had a long, a deuce game and Runa came up with a couple of great shots when serving at three, four, a couple of back end down the line winners that could have given Djokovic if he'd won those points, break points to go up 5-3. Runa came through in the clutch there, held on. They go, he gets to 4-all, then they go to 5-all. And again, Novak has 30 love on his serve at 5-all. So you're figuring, okay, mm. he can. He, the worst he's going to be is 6-5, and maybe he breaks. Or the worst that happens is he goes to a tiebreaker. Well, Runa won four points in a row, a couple of them on Novak mistakes, including the break point. So now he's serving for the match. And that, of course, was the highlight of the match. Six deuces. I mean, that six, five game that that you're about to talk about. It was about the length of what this entire podcast episode was going to be. I mean, it was incredible. It was. Um, And and great and some great stuff from both players. Yes, some tension. So they they both showed some frailty at times, but they also produced some some magnificent points. But the especially, problem, I think it was at the fifth deuce. I think it was the fifth deuce point at that six five game. That there was a point that you can go back on any social media channel. There was a point to me, there were some amazing points between Djokovic and Tsitsipas. This was the, the point I'm referring to, could have been the point of the tournament. It was unbelievable. 
like you said, now, both players were playing really, really well. Yeah, I think you're um, talking about the point where Novak had come in. Yeah, he comes in, and, and Runa hits a great lob so deep yes. that Novak has to retreat to the baseline, hit the overhead on the bounce. Then Novak ends up drop-shotting, bringing Runa in, and Novak now lob volleys over Runa, and then Runa wheels around and hits a pretty good pass and Djokovic lunges for the forehand volley winner. That was the point of yeah. the match. But point of the match, point of the, point of the tournament, point of the tournament. <laughs> even though he does all that and he played points like that in the, in the course of that game, then he'd get a little tight when he had the six break points, two or three of them, he was tight and uh, surprising misses, but the resilience of both players in that game was remarkable. I had the feeling, David, I don't know whether you did watching it, and Runa said later that he was kind of jumping out of his skin. Part of it was tension, but he also was yes. physically drained too. And I had the feeling that if no, if Djokovic gets it into a breaker, it might be a seven-two breaker for Djokovic. I just felt oh, like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bet against Djokovic in, yeah. a, in a tight breaker against anybody. Well, the combination of him him being the great clutch player in the breakers and also Runa being spent because I think he he had thrown everything he could into the into the six-five game. If he doesn't serve it out there. And Djokovic had finally gotten that break. I think it would have finally, he would have finally hit that emotional wall himself. We didn't get to see oh. it, but it still, yeah. it was still such a great final game of the match. He uh, saved six, like you said. I want to emphasize this. Yeah. Runa saved six break points. Yeah. I yeah. mean, this game was uh, filled with incredible amount of tension on both sides. And Novak was looking at him a few times. He had that wry wry grin on his face you know i think that in some ways he was stepping out of himself at certain times in the sense that appreciating the moment even though it didn't go his way he he admired the kid's gumption david and he made clear that about that after the match he said i didn't i didn't like losing to you but i you know it made it clear how much he admires him as a kid and as a young player and he sees a lot of himself he sees the 19 year old novak in holger runa there's no doubt about it but the, the, you know, the, the gumption that I mentioned and just the sense of self and, and and being respectful of your revered opponent, but not not giving him too much respect, just going out there prepared to win. And, and that's what was so interesting about this match. Djokovic definitely should have closed it in my mind, but and any a lesser man than Runa would not have been able to take advantage of it. They wouldn't have found a way to win either. They might have finally cracked themselves. He would not crack. And that yeah. was the story of his week, which, of course, began with saving three match points against Stan Wawrinka. Amazing. Yeah. Un unbelievable. It's how you see that in sports a lot of times. You have that one tough match, one tough day. But if you get through it, it propels you into uh, doing even better where you think you're not not playing with house money, but just I can't believe I got through it. I'm still alive. Let's keep going. I want to give um, stats on both Novak and Runa, and then I want to pass it on you to uh to talk about it novak right he he played he's only played 10 tournaments he's missed two slams and four masters events he's missed he missed out on 2,000 points in spite of winning wimbledon and yet he still finished in the top eight your thoughts well i think that just shows you how great he is i mean he was deprived of the 2,000 points as you mentioned which would have meant that he would have finished the year almost surely in the top five now i don't think that's going to be possible even if he wins turn but it shows you that once he got his year going david it wasn't easy initially the first few tournaments you know in, in dubai and and then and then monte carlo and he wasn't really himself and then slowly got going on the clay but, but from the time that he 
you know, winning Rome and losing the great master Carlos in Madrid. And I mean, he, he, you know, he, from that point on the quarters of the French and then winning Wimbledon and then the rest of the year, he's been pretty much the standard Novak. Yes. He would have liked to have won that final over Rune. It's, it's a slight setback, but not, not anything that I think is going to linger in his mind very long. And so I yes, to play, to play that, the, to play so many fewer events than any of the other top players. And he'll still end up finishing the year, as you said, somewhere in the top eight. It'll depend on how he does in turn. Maybe he can climb up to six or wherever, but remarkable achievement given how few opportunities he had to, to uh, garner points. And to our uh, title holder, Holger Runa, he started the year outside the top 100. He's now top 10. He's the first player um, with five consecutive wins against top 10 opponents in a single tournament. That's really, really impressive. Um, your thoughts and, and players are going to definitely have to deal with this kid going forward. Well, let's, you know, he, 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 you know, look at some of those guys and among the five, Hubie Hercotch is awfully tough to beat indoors, you know, with his big serve and aggression. And he beat, uh, obviously he, he was beating Carlos. He had him a set and they're going to the tiebreak in the second. Carlos had to retire in the middle of the tiebreak. Bad luck for Alcaraz, but he was being outplayed, David. It was going to be a hard, he was going to be awfully hard pressed to find a way out of that match, the way Runa was playing. And then Felix, who, of course, was the hottest player on tour with the three straight titles. So and he caps it all off by beating Djokovic. So, I mean, all of those wins over those top 10 guys were really impressive. And he just seemed to get better and better in many ways. You know, his confidence just grew as the week went on. Uh, and so he's now moved to another level. He's gone to number 10 in the world and he's the first alternate for Turin which means if Fritz or anybody else got hurt, any, any of the players have to pull out, he's in the tournament. But regardless, the fact that he finds himself in that territory, I mean, I'm very excited about the prospects for him next year. Here are going to be these two 19-year-olds who are both going to turn 20 next year, obviously. But the, the, the chance that they're going to have to build their own little rivalry, but also to threaten the more established figures in the top 10 time and again, uh, I'm, I'm excited about it because I, I don't think it's an accident that Runa is where he is and he'll keep climbing. Oh, uh, absolutely. Hey, and you know how much, I know we're talking about the WTA finals and Paris masters, two huge events. You also know how much I love uh, collegiate tennis and also the slightly lower levels. I hate even using that term because it discredits it a little bit. It, everyone here is so good, but uh, um, for you tennis fans, especially American tennis fans, um, two other title holders this week, and it was it's really exciting to see one played college, the other didn't. The collegiate player was Ben Shelton. He beat um, his, his American tennis uh, pro colleague, Chris Eubanks, 7-6-7-5 in Charlottesville. Um, we, we've talked about Ben before. He's not going to be playing too many more challengers, I don't think, in the future. Um, the other player on the female side, Katie McNally won a tournament in Midland, Michigan. She's now in the top 100. You all know Katie from the Coco playing doubles with Coco Golf. You also remember Katie in singles. She played Serena Williams tough in the U.S. Open just a few years back. Um, I know Katie's coach, Kevin, Kevin O'Neill, um, great, great guy. I'm looking, for, I'm looking to, to, for a bright future for both those players in singles and both Katie McNally and Ben Shelton. Yeah, I mean, those are timely victories for both. And I agree with you. Katie, Katie is not just a doubles player. She is in the top 20 in doubles. But I think maybe with, with some luck, we're going to see her eventually get to that level in singles as well. 
So nice win for her. And Shelton, we talked about him over the summer, how, how, how impressive he was. And this was something he needed because since the summer, he'd had a few tough losses uh, he'd had to endure. But, you know, he, he beat Eubanks in the finals, which is a good win. I watched Eubanks playing center at the U.S. Open this year, and I was very impressed. And yeah. earlier in the tournament, you know, he, he only lost, I think, one set in, in, in the tournament. And most of his wins were in straight. And he uh, he beat, among others, Brandon Holt, uh, you know, yeah. Tracy Austin's son, who had the great U.S. Open. So that was a very uplifting week for uh, Shelton and carries him to 128 in the world. And I think we're going to see him. He'll be inside that top 100 very, very soon. And again, I, I mean, you, you just the level so high. Steve mentioned Brandon Holt. Do you remember Holt from the U.S. Open? He beat Taylor Fritz, the U.S. Yeah. Open. And you know how great of a year Taylor's had. So um, good news on the American front with those, uh, I don't know if I say young pros. I mean, Katie's been around a, a while. Ben played college for two years, but looking forward to to seeing both of them play. Katie is young, but she's been on tour for for quite a bit. So with that, um, I think we're going to have a, I think we're going to post the big time guests next, next week. Is that what we're going to do, Steve? I know we already recorded it. We're not going to spoil the name here yet, but no, we're, we're not post that one. But we, I know the listeners will enjoy it. Just one last stat that I'd like to throw in because you enjoy these so much, David, to, to put the Holga Runa victory over Djokovic a little bit more in perspective. Novak came onto the court. Now just listen to this one for a second. He comes onto the court having won 891 matches and lost only 38 when he had won the first set. So almost at the 96% level, highest in the open era. 38 times in his entire career had he lost a match after winning the first set. And that included 30 Masters 1000 finals where he had not lost after winning the first set. And, then, and Runa somehow managed to come from a set. That shows you what remarkable, because he is, without a doubt, the best front runner I've ever seen. And Runa yeah. somehow toppled him. I did see the, the 30 and 0, uh, Mark. I did see that one. That, that was incredible. Those stats that you just said are, are ridiculously good. Um, with that said, th th this was fun, Steve. Again, we have a big time guest that I think we're going to post next week. And then the following week, we will wrap up um, the results in Turin. So we got a uh, we got a good couple of weeks coming up, Steve. This was this was a lot of fun. We had a good previous week. We had a good week that we just recapped both on the uh, WTA tour and on the ATP tour. This was fun. Thanks, Steve. David, I enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>